Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Doesn't it feel like we're hostages in our own country? That we're hostages to this vocal minority, this woke mob that are, are trying to dictate how we live our lives, what we can talk about, what's acceptable or not. And of course, they virtue signal without having any virtue or morality themselves. We're in a really weird place in society today. And I'm interested in, in finding out and, and talking to someone in this episode, Jennifer Say, who actually was a cancel culture victim who was forced out of her job at Levi's. Uh, she was the brand president. She was on track to be the jeans company CEO, but she was forced out for, for simply just raising questions about COVID. You know, she's got kids. She was worried what school closures would do, what impact that would have on her children. And they said, you know what? You got to shut up or, or ship out. And so she chose to resign as opposed to taking money and muzzling herself. So she experienced this woke mob, both as just a you know a human being in today's society during COVID, but also as an executive at a, at a major corporation. So I want to talk to her about that. And then also, what does this mean for society with Gen Z, this TikTok generation? What is our, our workforce going to look like in the future? And how much control do CEOs really even have when they're seemingly being held captive by these justice warrior employees. So that conversation and more, she's also the author of, of a new book, Levi's and Button. It's an autobiography of her time at Levi's. Uh, she's also the author of a book called Chalked Up. It's an autobiography of her time as an elite gymnast. And she was a producer of Athlete A, a documentary on the Larry Nassar scandal at USA Gymnastics. Uh, the film ended up winning an Emmy as well. So, so interesting background, interesting story. And we're going to get into all of it with Jennifer Say. Well, Jennifer, it's so good to have you on the show. You know, I, I want to obviously get into what led to you resigning from Levi's. But I mean, that track to, to get to the position of brand president, to be on the CEO track. I mean, you put in a lot of sweat equity. That's a major company. Talk about sort of that journey to get to the point where you were before you left. Yeah, I uh, thank you for having me. First of all, um, I spent the better part of my adulthood at Levi's climbing, climbing the ladder. I started there in 1999. It was not my first job, but certainly very early in my career. 
I was an entry level marketing assistant. I didn't even really know what I wanted, but I loved the brand and I loved the product and I'd worn the product since I was a young child. Um, you know, I tell a story in the, in the book that I wrote, Levi's Unbutton. I, I, I traveled to Moscow in 1986 for the very first Goodwill Games, which was sort of this rogue, you know, uh, Olympic style competition. And I brought 10 pairs of Levi's 501s to trade with the Russian gymnasts. I mean, they were part of my life and they represented rugged individualism and sort of the best of American values. And I loved this company. So I started there in 1999, worked my way up the ladder, which wasn't particularly easy as a woman in the 90s and 2000s. It was a pretty inhospitable environment to women, I would say. And I think you know, it's a testament to how far we, we have come that it is much better now. Um, it was very male dominated. You know, you spent time at sales meetings with drunken sales guys trying to, trying to avoid, you know, advances and that kind of thing. Um, but I climbed my way up and in 2013, I made it to chief marketing officer, which is a really big and public facing role that helps to steer the direction of the brand and the company and the brand was the company wasn't doing well you know we were near bankruptcy in 2011 the storied iconic brand and eight years in the role as cmo i helped bring it back and helped us to a ipo we we, we went public in 2019 very successfully um and i you know i was just a i was disciplined curious i took pride in being a leader and helping people um, build careers, you know, at the company. But in 2020, when the schools shut down and, and we went into total lockdown in, in San Francisco and across the country, I was alarmed and I was reading the data that showed that children were at, you know, no risk. And I was very outspoken. I have four children, um, all public school students. And I was outspoken about all of the restrictions to children uh, from the from the outset, you know, right from March 13th, 2020. And by outspoken, I, you know, on social media, I wrote op-eds, I was on the local news and eventually in, in the late fall of 2020 started leading rallies to try to get the schools open. And it was a conflict internally. I was told repeatedly I needed to stop, that it was upsetting to people. I did not stop for two years. And eventually I was told there was no longer a place for me at the company. Now, during this two years, I was promoted, as you indicated, to brand president, which is, you know, next in line for CEO. And I think a testament to the fact that I was performing in my duties. Um, but what I was doing was, quote unquote, upsetting to people. And it went against the Democratic Party narrative. And I was told I needed to leave and I, I was offered severance, did not accept it because I didn't want to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I wanted to be able to speak out about the censorship and the liberalism. And so here we are. And I'm talking to you. So how did they approach you? Were they just, you know, kind of what were those conversations like when they were obviously identifying things that they weren't happy with in terms of, you know, what you were saying about COVID? It didn't start for about six months. So I think the first call um, that I, you know, noted was in September of 2020. And, you know, I, as I was um, tweeting and writing stuff and, you know, I kept thinking, well, if someone calls me, I'll, you know, think about it. But, you know, no one's 
noticing I didn't really have a very large following. I'll just keep going. This is too important. Um, but in the fall of 2020, I got a call from our head of corporate communications. Um, and that role, you know, I think she would define it as protecting the corporate reputation, you know, of the company. And I think she saw what I was doing as potentially harmful to the reputation of the company, though I never identified myself as an employee. Um, you know, I was speaking as a mom and a citizen. Um, and she said, people are noticing, people are upset with what you're saying. And I said, okay, <laughs> I understand that, but I think it's the right thing to do to stand up for children. Um, and at this point, you know, it was the fall of 20. We knew so much. I mean, we know, knew so much in the beginning, but we knew, um, you know, that the median age of death was in the 80s. We knew that children were mercifully uh, protected. We knew that European schools had been opened. Um, and we knew that the private schools in my city were about to open. And this woman was about to send her children back to in-person school while telling me I could not advocate for the same for the low-income children of San Francisco. So, you know, she said, people are upset. You need to probably think about it and stop. And I said, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> and I said, are you telling me I have to? And she said, no, I can't do that. I don't know if she meant because, you know, legally she can't or because she was a peer and she didn't have the authority. Um, and I said, then I'm not going to. And she said, will you hold the line? And I didn't really understand what that meant. And I said, you know, I'm not going to identify myself as a Levi's employee. I'm not speaking on behalf of the company. That's what I will offer you. And we hung up. And from then on, every two weeks, I'd get a call from somebody else, you know, from the head of legal, from a board member. And the conversation pretty much went the same way. It did start to accelerate and kind of escalate in intensity in the spring of 21 after I appeared on Fox, which is a no-no, apparently. And of course, you were right. We knew the entire time that, you know, the remote learning was not going to be good for kids, that, you know, kids have been set back so far in terms of their learning and their development. I mean, it's really just been tragic what they did to kids. Why did you make the decision? You know, you said that you decided not to sign the non-disclosure. You didn't want to be muzzled, which essentially that's what it would have done. You know, what was that decision making like to say, you know, I'm going to walk away from this company I've spent all this time uh, working my way up? Yeah, I mean, the decision was whether or not to take the money and muzzle myself. I mean, I was being pushed out. You know, the, a job for me was no longer an option there. The question was, you know, did I take the money, give myself a quote unquote soft landing and walk away and not talk about it? And honestly, it took me all of about, you know, a few seconds to decide. Um, and people ask me all the time, why, why did you throw it all away? Why was this the hill that you were willing to die on? And my response is always, why weren't you? I mean, if we, if, if we, we shouldn't have to live in a country where we can't express our opinions, where we can't stand up for our families and where we're expected to further lies because it's what our tribe tells us to do. That is not a free country. And if we had been able to have a conversation, a societal conversation about this particular issue, you know, and all the other ones having to do with COVID, but this particular issue, I think we would have gotten to a very different answer and we wouldn't be experiencing, um, you know, the catastrophic harms that are playing out in terms of, you know, how our kids are doing. And so I just, I couldn't silence myself. You know, I mean, it, it all started with me just sort of being dogged and standing up for children. But as it progressed over the course of two years, what became more and more alarming was the censorship and the manufacturing of uh, this false consensus. And 
the lack of any ability to kind of have open debate and dissent around this issue. And that almost became more important and more central because that affects every issue, right, in the country. If we can't talk about these things, then we can't get to any reasonable common sense solution. And so I just wasn't going to give up my voice. It seemed too hypocritical. And I felt like, okay, this is a hill I will gladly die on, the hill for freedom of speech and the well-being of children. I can't really think of a higher purpose than that. It's more important than my job. And, you know, I decided quickly that I was not going to take the money. I respect that because, you know, we're like-minded in that way. I was actually interviewing for The View for the conservative seat and I wouldn't get vaccinated. And so, you know, there goes that, right? And then, then, of course, they all all end up with COVID regardless. (laughs) But, you know, no one one ever admits you were right about stuff, you know? But I I wanted to ask you, you you, you had mentioned that when you were starting at Levi's and, and you were working your way up, you felt like this company represents the best of America. Do you still feel that way? I would assume not no yeah i don't i mean i think the brand does in people's minds do you know what i mean when i and when i say the best like levi's has never been a brand that used uh you know flag imagery for instance in its in its advertising but i think the brand has very much stood for rugged individualism for progress and optimism and inclusion like you think about who wears levi's right? Everybody wears Levi's. Farmers and carpenters and minivan moms and hipster kids and b-boys and like everybody. Like that is, that's kind of the promise of America, right? That we're like united in our difference. We all wear um, this brand because we can be ourselves in it. And that's something that unites us, that we want to be ourselves. We want to express ourselves as individuals. And I always thought that was so cool about Levi's. And I think while people may not express it that way, like I just did because they didn't spend 23 years working on the brand, I think people have that sense. I mean, I know they do because I've talked to people around the world and people around the world love that about Levi's. And I think that's why my story has resonated because this is not a company that people don't know, you know, or like a giant company that you don't really know what they do, like Salesforce, you know, this is Levi's. Everybody has a pair in their closet and has some sense of it as representing that promise. And so to see this play out is alarming to people, right? And so, no, I don't. I think it's anything but inclusive. And I think they've trespassed their own stated values in an effort to see, to, to, to carry water for the Democratic Party. You know, there's this collusion between corporate America and kind of woke activists and um, and the actual Democratic Party and the press, by the way, who just prints, you know, the press and journalists have completely fallen off <laughs> course. And they, they print, you know, government issued talking points and corporate issued talking points from Pfizer as journalism. And that's not journalism. There's this total collusion. And so, no, I don't think they embody those values anymore. I think they pretend to. But clearly my story is evidence of the fact that they do not. It feels like we are all hostages to the woke mob. <laughs> we are all being held hostage by them. Talk about how beholden are corporations to the woke mob these days? And, and how did that happen? I mean, they don't have to be. You know, I mean, they are. because why, Yeah, why do you think they are, though? Well, I think it's a, a couple of things. Um, you know, I think the prime... One, I think these leaders are... They lack courage. They lack moral courage. They they don't know what they think. 
um, you know, I used to think when I was younger, I want to get in that room where the smart people are, the executives who are making tough calls. And I got in the room and I was like, what? <laughs> that's not what's happening here. You know, they look to their left and their right before uttering a word and they don't speak authentically and they don't speak in their own voice. And I think right now, you know, it's an attempt to profit off of Gen Z and millennial activism to say kind of, we share your values to buy our stuff rather than talking about we make this great product that you're going to like and focusing on product excellence. It provides a shield from scrutiny because the press eats it up and then they fail to kind of scrutinize these businesses. You know, I think someone like Sam Bankman Freed is a great example of that, right? He championed all these woke causes, pre-pandemic planning and environmentalism, and they put them on their covers of Forbes and Fortune, and they never did any basic due diligence in terms of looking at the financial fundamentals, which would have revealed that he was a fraud from the beginning, that he was celebrated for years and enabled, you know, that enabled his theft and fraud. So it's a shield from scrutiny. They like being celebrated. It's not cool to be rich anymore. You have to disavow your privilege and greed is not good. So even though they're still greedy and want to make a ton of money, um, they take these stances so they can be celebrated in all the ways that their egos require. And you know, lastly, they're afraid of their young employees. They want to impress their own kids. They don't understand social media. And so when they have their HR lead and their corp com lead coming to them and saying, you have to be very afraid of this very vocal punitive minority, they are. And so they cater to them. And at the end of the day, Lisa, I just don't think it would be that hard to stand up to them. You know, I think it would not be that hard to do, for instance, what um, Ted Sarandos at Netflix did when he said, look, I know you want me to take this off the platform, but we appeal to a lot, meaning Dave Chappelle's the closer, but we have a lot of viewers that like a lot of stuff. If you don't like it, don't work here. And that was it. It was over. Quick commercial break. More with Jennifer Say on the other side. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, see, that's the thing they don't understand is when you do see companies stand up and they're like, no, we're not going to do this. The mob goes away and finds another, you know, they'll, they'll find their next victim they do. that they target. It's like a swarm of bees, you know. You wrote in the New York Post, uh, which I, I love this, you wrote... These 20 and 30-somethings are ideological terrorists policing their peers and elders relentlessly. I mean, social media has really empowered this mob. You know, I mean, it has really empowered these young people, you know, I, I think a, a minority of our, of our population to have so much control over, you know, dictating sort of this fake morality and virtue signaling to the rest of us and holding these CEOs and companies captive as well. Yeah, they absolutely are. And I, I really honestly believe it's a very vocal and punitive minority. I think it's, you know, under 10%. I think the vast majority of people are applying basic common sense and at the very least are open to people having, you know, debate and dissent. But the, the majority stay quiet because they're afraid of the minority. And that's what puts people like me in this, you know, zone of being able to be targeted as fringe and, you know, crazy and dangerous because this, the majority, the, the, the majority stay silent, you know, they're afraid. And, and, you know, everything I faced over the course of the two years, it, in some ways it was, you know, behind closed doors, but in some ways it was also very public. You know, we had these virtual town halls because we, of course, were working virtually. It was too dangerous to go in the office. And people would just call me terrible names. And honestly, they didn't have to use their names, you know, in the chat, you know, can you please address what, why Jen say is here? She's a racist. She's this, she's a fat phobe. She's anti-trans. Like I was, uh, you challenge one aspect of the platform, one tenant, and then you get lumped into this. She's a fringe psychopath, QAnon, insane lady. And it was happening very publicly. People knew what was happening. And so they make the choice to stay quiet themselves. You know, nobody would even say, hey, I don't agree with her, but she has a right to say it. And 50,000 public school children are at home. We can have this conversation. Nobody wants to do that because so the 60, 70 percent stay silent and you have this battle between, you know, the 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 angry woke mom and it is real i don't care what the left says I, it was real they got me ousted from my job and then you have the people sort of brave enough to stand up and say hey can we talk about this or i'm not going to further these lies all of this the school closure, it was premised you know this on lies it was premised on the lie that we were all at equal risk it was premised on the lie that virtual learning was school. <laughs> it was premised on the lie that kids were resilient enough to endure this isolation and come out unscathed. And I wouldn't further a lie. Um, but that, that minority, I, you know, you, you ask a great question. I don't understand why we're all so afraid of them. When, if we stood together, we would be the majority. And you're right. I mean, what they do is they smear you. You know, I, I've literally raised questions about one vaccine and like my entire professional career <laughs> about the COVID vaccines. Cause you know, they were produced in less than a year. Most vaccines have five to 10 years of safety data and I'm not at risk. Cause I was like, sorry, I'm not getting it. And they label you the anti-vaxxer that this is what they do. They try to silence you through smears. I worry about, you know, this sort of TikTok generation, Gen Z, you know, these 
overly, you know, sensitive but incredibly hostile group of young people. It's a strange combo, it, isn't it? Very sensitive but very hostile. It's like with our leaders wanting to fly private while telling us, you know, we need to do something about climate change, and you're just like, none of it makes sense, and and any of this, uh, you know, we live in a clown world. What does this mean for the future generation of our country, our workforce? I mean, I, I worry that we're not producing the best. And that comparatively speaking to other countries, we're going to be left behind because, you know, we're producing a bunch of, you know, crybaby victims who think they deserve everything without ever having to work for anything. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting observing, you know, and it's slightly tangential, but like, you know, San Francisco, where I used to live, I moved to Denver during all of this, but has the lowest return to office occupancy rate. And, you know, at the time of my leaving Levi's in spring of 22, um, they had reopened offices sort of in a soft way and the highest occupancy on any given day was like 15%. Like people were just refusing to come back. And I will tell you, they're not doing work. I mean, I can tell you from managing a team for two years that was virtual. Um, they're not, you know, they say it's flexibility. They say they want, um, you know, more flexibility, which I always allowed for anyway. I never told people they had to be in their seats from nine to six every day. You could pick up your kid, just get your work done. But yeah, they're not, they're not doing work and they're, they're demanding, um, you know, everything on their terms. I, I think at the end of the day though, it's going to have to, it, from, I'll say from a business perspective, business is not good. It's going to get back to brass tacks at the end of the day. They're going to have to get back to product excellence, you know, aspirational marketing and treating employees fairly, but holding them to account to do the work that they're supposed to do. They're, they're not going to hold the reins forever. And I, I just, I think they're going to, these businesses, I think that CEOs are hungering to get back to business, to stop with all the extraneous stuff, to stop listening and being terrorized by these young people who, and it's not all young people. I had amazing young people that worked for me. I just want to say that. But by this minority of people who are bringing their proselytizing to the workplace, go work somewhere else. Go work at a nonprofit. Go do advocacy. If you want to work in corporate America, work on delivering a great product that improves people's lives and, you know, you know, doing it in a way that um, is collaborative and people enjoy and market it aspirationally. That's what a business is. And I, I just, I think that it's just going to be necessary. And I think eventually corporate leaders are going to have to do it out of necessity, but someone needs to counsel them and give them the words. They don't know how to stand up. They don't know how to say the simple thing that Ted Sarandos said. They don't know how. So some smart person has to <laughs> start to consult with them and tell them how to do it because I think they're hungry to get back to it. Well, I was watching the uh, like there was all these videos circulating when Elon Musk took over Twitter and it was like the day in the life of, you know, Twitter people. And they're like, I went to yoga and then I went and got my latte. <laughs> you're like, I went to like my safe space. Like you're like, what? I think this is not I mean, I'm 38 and that's not the world that I grew up with. And, you know, in terms of working, I mean, I've had to work my butt off. You know? no. like, I, I don't understand uh, this, like the, the work culture these days. And I don't think COVID helped either because, you know, everyone basically was told to stay home and they got paid from the government. And I, I think we're, we're in this really weird era uh, from a work perspective of just laziness, to be perfectly honest. Well, it starts in the universities. You know, it's like effort, not results. 
I mean, remember the story, I don't even know how long ago it was at this point, about the NYU prof, the humbio prof or some some pre-med prof who got fired. And the complaints from the students were that he didn't account for the effort they put in to their work. He didn't account for how hard they were working. No, it's about mastery, not effort. And, 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 and you know, we live in a world where it's been determined that, you know, a results focused or merit driven approach is, is, is called racist. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think people want doctors who just worked hard. They want doctors who have mastery of the subject matter. Now we can put the whole doctor conversation aside and as far as how, you know, many doctors kind of moved through the, the COVID regime. But at the end of the day, it, it has to be about results in business, in, in, in every sector. You know, if you're not providing adequate patient care, you don't get to be a doctor. If you're not delivering results in a business, you don't get to have that job. But we're not allowed to say that anymore. But again, these corporate leaders, they still at the end of the day care about making money and, and results. They're just sort of wrapping it in these woke stances now. And that's what I take issue with is the lie. At the end of the day, they still want to make money. The board wants them to make money. The shareholders need them to make money. That's their fiduciary responsibility. So let's be honest about that. Let's be honest about how to do it. You can do it and treat employees well. You know, you don't have to have misogynistic work cultures. Um, you don't have to be unfair in the way you pay people. Uh, but get back to basics. I, I just think we're going to have to. I, I mean, it's not going to be without effort from people like us, but at the end of the day, we live in the real world and boards and shareholders are not going to accept declining profitability because companies aren't requiring employees to go to work and all they do all day is talk about their feelings when they do. Well, I also think saying like the people that say a merit-based society is racist, I think that is actually a racist thing to say because you're saying that certain types of people cannot rise to meet those merits and that's not the viewpoint I have. So I, I think it's actually you know demeaning and belittling to and, and racist, quite frankly. This equity point of view is actually racism uh, in a nutshell. So uh, you were uh, an elite gymnast. You uh, also worked, you're one of the producers of Athlete A documentary on the Larry uh, Nassar scandal at the USA Gymnastics. The um, documentary won an Emmy, which is really cool. I, I wanted to just ask you before we go, you know, what did you learn? If you can, kind of give us a preview about what you learned from being a producer on that documentary. Yeah, I, well, I had been an elite gymnast as a child, um, and I was the 1986 national champion. And I wrote a book in 2008 about the abuse of culture, which is and, and, and I was sort of canceled in a smaller kind of purview for that because I said things that no one else had said yet about how abusive the culture was physically, emotionally. And yes, there are sexual predators um, rampant in the sport and they were protected and we were sacrificed. So, you know, I am well acquainted with the ways that adults can sacrifice the well-being of children. Eventually, when the Nasser story broke, which was about 10 years after I wrote my book, I was redeemed. And everyone who dragged me and said I was a grifter and a liar suddenly said they had always stood stood with me. Um, so in, in about 2017, 18, I decided I thought that it would be a great idea to make a film that connected the crimes of Nasser to the broader culture of abuse. It's, he's not happening in isolation. He's happening because 
because this culture allowed for him to happen, um, because this culture allowed for the abuse of young children and beat them down to the point that they would accept any and all manner of abuse. That's why it happened. And so I actually concepted the film and I had worked um, closely with a lawyer, the lawyer for most of the, the Nasser survivors. So I knew a lot of the young women. Um, and I think the most important thing for me was, again, to not make it this like salacious story about Nasser specifically, but to connect it to that broader culture of abuse. And I think that's what we were able to do successfully. And there is a movement that has started around the world within gymnastics and other Olympic sports where athletes are saying, no more. We make this sport. We decide. We are not going to accept this kind of mistreatment on behalf of, co you know, from coaches and the governing bodies of the sports. And so the athletes are, are rising up to demand better, which I think is amazing. I'm super proud of that in terms of what the film was able to accomplish. You had mentioned that people after the fact are like, oh, yeah, I was there all along. We see that a lot with COVID, too, where it's like, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I was, I, you know, I'm against lockdowns. I was against I'm like, I don't think the record states that, but whatever. <laughs> know, Isn't like... it interesting? They'll say it when all the record states opposite. Like there's video, there's tweets. Like how do they just lie like that? I don't understand it. I don't know. Unfortunately, we're not going to you know solve all of the world's problems here. Well, Jennifer, I, I appreciate your voice. I appreciate what you've done and just taking a stand. Um, and it seems like you had mentioned kind of being on the front end of calling out what was happening in gymnastics and then also with COVID. There seems to be a pattern <laughs> with, with you, so I, I respect it. We need more of that in, in today's society. So, uh, Jennifer, I appreciate it. And everyone go check out author of Chalked Up and then more recently Levi's Unbuttoned as well, which is not a biography of your time at, at Levi's. So thanks so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it and I appreciate your voice. That was Jennifer Say. Uh, interesting conversation. You know, I love people like her who uh, speak out and are unafraid. I really think the only way we can turn this country around and escape from this clown world we're living in is to just have more people speak up and be brave like her. So I appreciate her time. I appreciate you guys as always for listening to the show every Monday and Thursdays when we do new episodes. But of course, you can listen throughout the week or whenever you want. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Feel free to leave us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thanks so much. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.